very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. I'm Sean Richards, hosting today and joined by Pastor Scott Richards for the next hour. That guy. <laughs> if you'd like to join us, feel free to send us your sincere Bible questions. We will be making ourselves available to answer just that very same thing. Remember, sincerity means that you want to hear the answer. Bible, meaning that the substance of the question and the answer both pertain to the 66 books, 39 for the Old, 27 for the New, in the Old and New Testament that we call the Bible, or in Anglican, the books. The point of emphasis of this program is to equip the saints for that very purpose, to give us a reason for the hope that is within us. So if you'd like to take advantage of that resource, then feel free to not only listen to what we have to say, but also to examine it to make sure that you're being a Berean. We encourage that too. If you want to send us your questions, note that there are ways you can do that. First off, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions are plural, F-O-R instead of the number four, and hope at gmail.com is where you can send them to us. Note that that will be available during and after the broadcast and before, depending on where you are in the time spectrum. But that is, of course, also useful for you if you sent us a question and we weren't able to get to it on the broadcast. It helps us keep things organized. So feel free to use that for your Bible questions. We appreciate your guys' uh, private lives, but if you want to ask <laughs> us questions beyond the Bible, now it's there for us. So note that if you want to join us on social media, you can join us on YouTube. Give us a subscribe and hit the notification bell, and you'll be notified when we are going live every single weekday, starting today from 4 to 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. If you want to take advantage of that as well, on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, we have our bi-weekly Bible study, normally going through the book of Esther and on Sundays the book of Acts. However, with this upcoming Valentine's Day, they let me stand up there, so we'll discuss the Trinity. <laughs> but that will be available for you as well if you want to listen to our Bible studies as well. Maybe you aren't able to join on your local fellowship. Our Facebook page has the same benefits. It is at CCF Tucson or Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You like us there and you'll be notified when you are going live if you still use the Facebook platform. And if you prefer to avoid social media altogether, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. We can receive your questions there through the Send Your Question to Us app, as well as the Watch Live button that's at the top of the screen. You'll be able to send us your questions live in the chat box, just like you would on YouTube or Facebook. But this way, if you want to be anonymous, you can put in your own name, and you don't have to subscribe to us. You can just use the platform. Once again, as long as your questions are sincere about the Bible and asked in the form of a question, we will be able to and happy to send or uh, answer your questions rather on the broadcast for the next 54 minutes and 24 seconds. But before we venture into that, why don't we take a moment to pray and make sure that as we say, the Lord speaks more than we do. All right, Lord, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to spend time in your presence here. Lord, we welcome that. Lord, we need that. We need to be refreshed through your spirit. We need to be touched and blessed through your love. And so, Lord, uh, we don't come seeking anything less than a direct contact with you based upon your truth, based upon your grace, based upon how it all has been revealed to us. 
through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would have that encounter with you, that we would see you in your glory. We would realize that uh, the reason that we exist is to have that relationship with you and uh, to know and enjoy your love forever. And so bring, uh, in some small way, uh, a reflection of your glory back to you. Uh, God, what a privilege that is. And we pray, Father, that in, in some small way we would be able to represent you here on this broadcast clearly as your word uh, reveals you, not based upon human takes or what's going on in our lives or the uh, pulls and pushes of our emotions, but rather what your revelation has to say. That's what we need. And so, Father, with all the uh, crazy stuff going on all around us all the time, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us now and guide us into truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. All right. Well, it is the start of the weekend. What a weekend it's been. Anything to update us on for the last two and a half days? Well, uh, probably the uh, huge headline that is going on uh, as far as Israel is concerned is the move into the area known as Rafa. Uh, Rafa is the southernmost part of the Gaza Strip. It uh, abuts, if you will, the border of uh, Egypt. And uh, as a result of that, uh, it, it is sort of pushed uh, the leadership of Hamas uh, into a corner. Uh, they really have nowhere else to go. Uh, and as such, uh, you're seeing uh, an awful lot of uh, hue, cry, and uproar being raised uh, by those that, uh, well, have been sort of assuming uh, plausible deniability as far as being out-and-out -out supporters of Hamas uh, while actually doing so. Uh, and so the uh, sooner uh, that Israel goes into this area, the sooner that uh, the uh, leadership of Hamas is uh, essentially brought to heel uh, the sooner that this conflict is going to happen. So as a result of what is going on, uh, this push into Rafa, we're already seeing some pretty extraordinary things happening as a result. Uh, two individuals who had been kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th were not only uh, located, but in a daring an incredibly efficient rescue operation conducted by uh, Israeli uh, Navy SEALs, their special forces, as well as Sheen Beit, their uh, uh, rough equivalent of the, uh, the uh, their uh, Secret Service, and uh, the Mossad, uh, their equivalent of our CIA, uh, all came together in such a way that uh, these two men, Fernando Marman and Louis Har, were uh, rescued. Uh, in fact, they were not only rescued, uh, according to intelligence the, uh, the IDF had received. They were located on the second story of a residential building in the area of Rafa. Uh, the, uh, during the time that most Americans were watching the Super Bowl, uh, Israel moved in on this particular location. Uh, they were able to uh, breach the doors of this building with explosives, take out uh, the Hamas guards that were downstairs, and move upward. Immediately, uh, this uh, uh, contingent of uh, Israeli soldiers were fired upon by Hamas terrorists in buildings literally surrounding uh, the building where uh, uh, Fernando Marman and Louis, Louis Har uh, were being kept. Uh, Israel responded uh, by uh, air support and uh, by uh, troops on the ground. And uh, the uh, amazing thing about it all and uh, how this all came together were the details that came out. First of all, 
there were no casualties uh, on the IDF, uh, Sheen Bay, Mossad, none whatsoever. Uh, only one uh, IDF uh, soldier was lightly wounded in uh, the exchange. Uh, the uh, the uh, two were uh, hustled from uh, where they were located in this residential uh, building outside to a Black Hawk, Hel- Hawk helicopter, which was waiting for them and uh, brought to, to their relatives outside of Gaza. Uh, Amir Sarfati has new details about the rescued hostages that were uh, posted just before airtime here. Uh, according to Amir, uh, Fernando Marman and Louis Har, their relatives say they had cooked for the family that had held them captive in uh, Gaza. They lived mostly on pita bread and white cheese and uh, returned having lost much of their body weight. They had not seen sunlight during the 129 days since their abduction. They were asleep when Israeli forces entered and uh, until they realized that they were in the hands of Israelis, they were sure they were going to die. The extraction came as a complete surprise. The men had not seen news for the entire time they were held hostage except for one time they were able to watch a broadcast on Al Jazeera. Now, uh, as far as that uh, that extraction raid is concerned, some more details uh, about it. Uh, the raid took place uh, after Israeli intelligence identified the building in which the hostages were hidden. Uh, Yannam, which is the name of uh, the elite commando unit uh, that went in there, uh, were chosen to carry out the operation. The forces trained on a model, believe it or not, and prepared for various incidents and complications. Uh, Last night, the forces were given the green light to go ahead and proceed. So they'd known that these uh, individuals were in this place for a while. How did they know? Uh, By interrogating various members of Hamas that they had captured. The extraction team uh, arrived uh, quietly at the home about 1 a.m. At 1.49 a.m., the forces breached the second uh, floor apartment with explosives and within moments killed three terrorists guarding the hostages. Within one minute of the rescue, the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, uh, carried out massive airstrikes against Hamas terrorists in the area of the operation. Uh, the two hostages were taken in by the forces in armored vehicles out of Rafah and put in a military hot helicopter that brought them to the hospital. So um, it really... Uh, in, in a sense, almost takes on uh, the same sense of almost divine intervention that uh, we saw during the raid on Entebbe, uh, where uh, a uh, plane load of Israelis were taken to uh, Uganda uh, when Idi Amin was running the show, and uh, they were able to be rescued uh, with very minimal casualties uh, involved with all of this. So, uh, just uh, an amazing step forward. Again, our friend uh, Amir Serfati uh, said that he was weeping when he got the news today to, uh, to, to find out that these hostages had been, in fact, rescued. Now, where this is really going to um, become more and more uh, pronounced, and, and we have a number of different uh, stories that you can click on on our uh, uh, Scott R4H at uh, twitter.com or at x.com, I guess, uh, website. We put uh, quite a few uh, uh, up there uh, for you, uh, but uh, the, uh, the including uh, pictures of the uh, rescued hostages uh, being reunited with their families. So, you know, what we're going to see is uh, the United States, I think, taking a harder line uh, against Israel. There have been some reports about uh, President Biden making some, well, shall I say, untoward 
remarks about his assessment of the character of Benjamin Netanyahu, particularly after this hostage uh, operation took place. It was the United States' position, according to many sources, that Israel would be stopped from going into uh, Rafah. But now it is very, very plain that Israel is going to go into Rafah, whether the international community uh, likes it or not. Uh, Again, uh, 50 terrorist targets were attacked in Rafah, over 60 terrorists killed, hundreds of terrorists wounded. Uh, this is the last stronghold of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so uh, over 100 uh, terrorists killed in that operation, and Israel is going to uh, press on. Uh, there's no doubt about the fact there's a spiritual warfare element here. There's no doubt that the wicked one wants Hamas to survive. And Israel simply isn't going to go along with that. So very interesting to see uh, what our administration is going to do in this regard. Uh, At first, it seemed like there would be immediate pushback uh, that would be given as a result of all of this. But then it seems uh, that uh, President Biden uh, acquiesced and uh, did not uh, try to put any kind of uh, brakes on this uh, particular operation. So uh, be praying for the rest of the hostages, as we said on our uh, X platform, two down, 128 to go. Uh, Still uh, 128 hostages, uh, a number of them American citizens that are being held by the terrorists of Hamas in that area. Uh, Yesterday uh, was also uh, very significant in that uh, there was a church shooting that took place. Uh, the church shooting that took place uh, took happened uh, at uh, Joel Osteen's Lakewood uh, Church in Houston, Texas. And uh, the individual that was involved uh, with the shooting uh, entered uh, the, uh, the uh, confines of Lakewood Church about 2.30 in the afternoon, wearing a trench coat, immediately produced a, uh, uh, I guess you would call it a, a long rifle and began shooting uh, indiscriminately at people uh, in the uh, immediate vicinity. And note, she brought a five-year-old along with her in order to make sure she had something to hide behind in the crossfire. Yeah, fascinatingly, uh, the perpetrator, a, who has been identified as Janice Yvonne Moreno, uh, was initially identified as being a man. Uh, then the Houston police had to go through a number of gyrations to determine uh, whether to identify her as, by her given name as she is a transsexual of Jeffrey Escalante uh, or identifying her by her legal and biological name, Janice Yvonne Moreno. Uh, the most troubling aspect of this uh, is not just that you have an individual like this going into a church to do a mass shooting. That's bad enough. Uh, Janice Yvonne Moreno brought with her a five-year-old who was wounded in the exchange uh, with security people who were armed uh, and able to respond uh, to uh, her, her outburst. Uh, but uh, the other interesting thing is on her long rifle were carved the words, Free Palestine. As if hiding behind the five-year-old didn't tell us enough. Yeah. So um, the fascinating thing to me is, and uh, I think it really illustrates something that is is just profound in this whole conversation that we're having uh, about Israel and about Hamas. 
Uh, here's an individual who believed that they were doing the right thing by supporting what they would assume is a leftist organization, and that is Hamas. Uh, the, the problem is, is if Janice Yvonne Moreno had been in Gaza and as a woman tried to pass herself off as Jeffrey Escalante, um, she would have been hung publicly if she was lucky. Uh, they have other ways of executing people that are not quite as pleasant. And in all fairness, we do understand completely why no one would want to be a woman in a Muslim country, but to be a transgender is a capital offense. Right. And uh, how fascinating that even last week uh, when uh, protests were going on and people were uh, making statements in short in support of Iran when the United States was attacking Iranian-based militias who had uh, fired upon American uh, military emplacements, killed three American soldiers, uh, there were those who were uh, on the left uh, supporting Iran. Well, Iran was uh, busy hanging publicly. Twelve individuals were convicted of practicing homosexuality. Might have been 13. Yeah. So uh, the, 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 the bottom line is there's a tremendous amount of ignorance uh, that is being bought into, and uh, ignorance is not bliss. In this case, ignorance motivated a mentally unstable individual to uh, take a long rifle into a church and begin indiscriminately shooting people. Fortunately, she came in about 2.30 in the afternoon, so there weren't very many people there. Uh, but uh, the, the, the bottom line is we really do need to understand what's going on here. And, and, and there are those who will say, well, if that's true, why does it seem that so many uh, on the left are supporting Hamas over Israel in this particular conflict? Well, you have to understand that in Marxism, which is the uh, essential platform of what is going on in this circumstance, there are only two categories of people in the world, oppressors and the oppressed. The oppressed are identified as those who have less than the oppressors. So if you look at the Israel-Hamas conflict through the lens of Marxism, you look at Israel as a thriving economy that has a powerful military uh, that has standing in the world. And then you look at Hamas, which is this uh, hard scrabble ragtag group of terrorists who spend most of their time uh, building terror tunnels instead of taking care of their people. Uh, you know, so you would immediately say, oh, well, we know who the oppressor is and who the oppressed is. In Marx's thought, the oppressor can do nothing right. No matter what they do, uh, it is morally wrong. The oppressed can do nothing wrong, and there's always an excuse for what they do. And when you hear uh, those that are embracing Marxism try to explain what happened on October 7th, they will say, well, you know, uh, Gaza was, uh, it was an open-air prison. Uh, Gaza was a, uh, a pot with a heavy lid on it. It was put on boil, and certainly, certainly something had to blow sooner or later. This was an act of desperation by oppressed people against their oppressors. Uh, and that makes sense if that's the only input you get until you ask Hamas why they attacked Israel. Why did Hamas conduct the October 7th massacre? Well, if we open our Quran, we will find a regular condemnation, or not, of the Hebrew people when their founder and moral paragon, Muhammad bin Abdullah, ultimately put himself forward as a prophet of the 
Nabate- the word Allah just means the general God. Like we mean God is the sense of what he is, who he is would be Yahweh. He doesn't give a personal name for his God. It ultimately comes down to a claim that he was preaching the same God as the Jews and the Christians. And there were Jewish and Christian tribes throughout Arabia at the time. The problem is they had been exiled there for not being uh, Christians on account of the Roman Empire. They were heretics. So when it comes to Muhammad's influence and input on what Christians believe, it's no wonder that passages like the Quran's definition of the Trinity claims that the Godhead that we believe in is composed of Jesus, Allah, and Mary as three separate gods. Not even Joseph Smith was that inept. Likewise, when we're being told about all of their interactions, Muhammad went so far as to say that we have him mentioned in our scriptures, and he could say this with impunity to an entirely pagan environment since they didn't read and he couldn't read either. They, in fact, had a nickname for him called the ear because he believed everything that he heard. And when it came down to it, ultimately all of the fables that he was reciting from not just Christians and Jewish sources, but literally things that everyone knew was false, even in a pagan environment, Muhammad was passing them off as sound history and even went so far in his ignorance as to claim that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the same Miriam, the sister of Aaron. So when it ultimately comes down to it, the Quran's sources of information weren't the most reliable, but apparently it was from God. Then when Muhammad got kicked out of Mecca, his hometown, on account of him regularly harassing, insulting, and deriding the traditions of the pagans around him, his uncle Abdullah was only able to protect him for so long. So he went to a city by the name of Yathrib, which was later called Medina, and this the Jews in that tribe considered him as a middleman. And when he started making his claims about being a prophet of the Jewish God, they laughed him to scorn. They knew that everything that he was claiming, not only that he was from the tribe of Ishmael and a prophet, that's your first strike, but everything was claiming about the God of Israel was verifiably false, that he was um, telling fables and passing them off as biblical authority. Well, that apparently is a tradition that was handed down to Muslims today because it ultimately ended up in him calling for the extermination of the Jews and Christians for not receiving him as a prophet, even though they were supposed to be the authority as to whether or not he was a prophet in the first place. And you see the Muslim expansion into northern Africa and into southern Europe throughout the 8th century. The term, I believe, today is colonization. But the point of emphasis is an interesting one because in the very early expansions of Islam into the central Middle East, Israel was one of those targets. And despite the fact that John of Damascus, one of our earliest hostile sources towards Islamic history, makes no mention specifically of any Muhammad or even a religious affiliation of the Arabs that took over the area. The religious system that ultimately founds Islam today is fundamentally built on the idea that military success, might, is what proves you right. And when the Ottoman Empire ultimately collapsed, what many considered to be the caliphate, the succession of Muhammad's authority, in World War I, the British Empire divided up the land and considered the Jews worthy of their own homeland, as it was historically laid out, in, excuse me, the land that we know today and as we knew biblically as Israel. And the Muslims looked at that and had one of two conclusions to make. Either we 
are not following the right God or we're not following this God passionately enough. This was a trend that was introduced by Wahhabism in the uh, Saudi Arabia, not known as such as at the time, but that country and territory when Wahhabism was found, people who wanted to get back to the roots, their reform, reintroduced a system of violence and radical persecution of Christians and Jews worldwide that we still see at work today, the foundations of ISIS, Hamas, and of course the um, organization known as Al-Qaeda. It's sad that uh, all these organizations are almost old news at this point, but we can also name others, Al-Shabaab and so forth. But okay, here's the so point. Hamas themselves yeah. is one of the individuals and organizations that is trying to uphold this tradition that when they as Muslims take their Quran seriously and the example of the life of Muhammad seriously they read passages like to kill the idolaters and infidels wherever you find them that the Jews are worse than apes and pigs the worst of created beings that we are to strike the necks of the non-believers and so forth they take their religious claims and their religious sources as seriously mm. as you and I would take our Bibles. Mm. And that sincerity has motivated them not only to dehumanize the Hebrew people, but to see the existence of the territory we know as Israel today as a land that was taken from them. And the Quran makes an imperative to drive them out from whence they drove you out. Now the claim that the Israelites drove them out is a false one. They left their homes voluntarily when Muslim nations around them said they were going to drive Israel to the sea, into the sea, and of course to get out of the line of fire so that they could go and loot the homes of the now unoccupied lands that would be cleansed of the Hebrew scum. This is what ultimately left them wondering, once again, we failed. In 1948, 67, and every intifada that followed. Right. So what's wrong? Is it Islam? No, we can't say that because our leaders and communities will exile us at best, kill us at worst. So then what do we do? We say we're not being Muslim enough. We have to found organizations that originally were created as a middleman between the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and Hamas was established in order to be a less radical group yet they were still reading the same Quran. They still knew the same historical Muhammad. And every single time, Western journalists and politicians right. fail to see that history is repeating itself because the record and instruction manual hasn't changed. And this is the point of emphasis. Why are they attacking Israel? Because their God hates the Jews for exposing their false prophet before he really even had a leg to stand on. But to his credit, he did surround himself with the kind of people who would be appealed to by the idea of what was ultimately ripped off from the Zoroastrian version of paradise, where they would spend eternity deflowering virgins. And again, if you don't know the kind of people that attracts, you're fortunate. But they would enforce and ultimately shield the sensitive conscience of Muhammad from any form of criticism and eliminate the existence of any competition to his claim. That is that the Jews and Christians are the living example, not only that Muhammad was wrong intellectually, but the existence of Israel territorially, that land that Muhammad once conquered, quote-unquote, is now in the hands of the Israelites again. This is a disproving of the mindset culturally of those who would believe that Islam is true. So when we're talking about organizations like Hamas, we're talking about groups of people that see no other way to establish truth than violence and force of arms, that have no reason to trust that their God 
is in fact who he claimed to be, and their prophet, ultimately the object of their worship, is who he claimed to be, except by force of arms. That's why there's this continual show of this horrible track record of success, mind you, but every single effort and attempt possible in order to see the Jews subjugated and brought under the status of either dimitude, which is uh, second, um, second uh, class citizen status, <clears throat> that will ultimately result in them paying half of what they own in extortion money so that they have the right to live in Muslim land without being killed. But of course, local law enforcement will turn a blind eye whenever that happens. We see this in Muslim countries all over the world today. The point of emphasis is that, though. When Muslims are motivated to kill, they look at the historical example of Muhammad. They see the first major battle of Islam, which ironically enough was the seventh in a series of attacks unprovoked against the Meccan pagans attacking their caravans, terrorizing them for the crime of not wanting to put up with Muhammad's harassments and insults against their traditions. Then, at the seventh battle, they sent a military guard to protect them, and the Muslims won, despite being outnumbered. Now, there's a lot I can say about the circumstances surrounding this, but in reference to Hamas, it ultimately comes down to two key factors of motivation. In order to motivate Muhammad's companions to participate in the battle, he had to promise and guarantee them paradise, something that nobody in Islam ultimately has. Some of Muhammad's closest companions and people like his best friend Abu Bakr, when he was promised directly by Muhammad, that he would enter paradise. He said, according to the most authoritative uh, traditional source, Sahih al-Bukhari, that if I had one foot in paradise, Abu Bakr speaking, I would still fear Allah's deception. So note the comparison. If Muhammad was Jesus, as far as authority is concerned, he was the apostle Peter. He was the apostle John and James, all lumped up into one. And he understood that his God was not only a deceiver, but that there was no guarantee of paradise for any of them. Muhammad himself said in the Quran and the Hadith sources that I don't know what Allah is going to do to me, and I'm the prophet. This was at the death of one of their friends who was a very pious man. A woman said, congratulations, you have entered paradise. Muhammad says, how do you know? whether Allah has blessed him or not. I don't know what Allah is going to do with me, and I'm the prophet. So the point being made is this. If this term of security, of salvation, ultimately comes down to you have to die as a martyr, slain the unbelievers, wherever you find them, in accordance with the Quran, then you ultimately have to put two things together, which is why you see, for instance, the 9-11 attackers in strip clubs and bars the night before their attack. And it was what? Well, we haven't lived our lives as good Muslims, faithful Muslims. Our sins are going to be as heavy as a mountain. And unless we want to count on what Sahil Bukhari 6664 says, that our sins will be unloaded on the Jews and Christians and will enter paradise instead of them, then that means the only way for me to get things right with Allah is to die in jihad. It's the only other option for me. Because even the most pious Muslim, Muhammad himself, wasn't worthy by his good works alone to enter paradise whether or not the, flat, the feather on the balance sheet is ultimately going to outweigh what the angels and the demons are gathering, his barakah and his biddah, his good and bad deeds, whether they've recited enough Quran verses that will ultimately come to life in some bizarre pagan image and intercede for the believers, they don't know. They can't know, because the same man they're trusting for their salvation, the same source that they claim is the eternal speech of Allah, condemns them to an eternal state of insecurity. So Hamas 
seeing the Jews as subhuman, as the Quran describes them, seeing the Jews as the eternal enemies of Muhammad, despite his early ministry saying that they were the reasons that he could be trusted, and then finding out that wasn't true, being the reason and motivation, ultimately, the belief and the claims of their God says, this is how you enter paradise, it's not just that, oh, well, they've been in an open-air prison despite having five-star resorts and, of course, a uh, growing population in the midst of a genocide. Never <clears throat> happened in history. They take their religion seriously. What you believe matters. And their claims are not just the hatred of the Jews and Christians, but the enforcement of truth only through the strength of arms, which is why they and Iran, and Saudi Arabia, and many others, or specifically in Saudi Arabia, the religious police, can only know that their religion is true by being more violent, more oppressive, conquering more land and territory, like you're seeing in Britain and France. Ultimately, it has to come down to that. Now, we look at this and we pity them. Why? Because we know that God is real. We know that God has revealed himself in history, not as the caricature of a 7th century warlord, but as Jesus of Nazareth, whom the Quran emphatically denies as such 700 years later, or 600 years later, reliable source. But the point is just that. They don't know the God who is there for them, that loves them, that died for them, that rose from the dead in a moment of history. Their entire religious and political system is centered around silencing anyone who would dare say such a thing because Muhammad didn't know what he was talking about. But we can't know that. And that's the whole point of Hamas. Yeah. The Jews are a living example. Israel is a living example that Muhammad was wrong. And the way he modeled how you deal with criticism in history is through violence, which is what we see. Does that mean that Muslims always are going to be violent? No. Like many Christians, they don't take their religion seriously and they wouldn't know the Quran from a phone book if you recited it in Arabic. But the point being made is just that. If they don't know the true God, they're ultimately submitting to something less than that, and we recognize that as demonic. Islam is a very plain example of what that ultimately results in, but all of this history lesson is meant to drive home that point. This is a trend that started the moment Islam was founded, and it has not ceased in history. It may have abated in certain areas of the world, especially in the United States. But understand even then that our, first, our second war after the Revolutionary War was against the Barbary pilots demanding jizya from us, or we would go to war. The founding of our Marine Corps is dealing with Muslims demanding us to be either enslaved or to become Muslims ourselves. We didn't, and so the establishing of leathernecks in order to fight against Surah 47 Force command to strike the necks of the unbelievers is also humorous but that's the point that's why hamas yeah. is fighting yeah and uh and as we said before this conflict ultimately isn't going to be won by force of arms by bombs but rather by changing beliefs and that's why we encourage you to be praying not only that uh the, the people of israel would uh openly uh, receive their messiah yeshua jesus uh into their hearts and we're starting to see a tremendous movement of uh, jewish people doing that all over the world but we also need to be praying for the Palestinians, especially those that uh, have suffered so much uh, in the Gaza Strip, that they would come to know uh, that uh, Jesus has come to set them free, to take the sword from their hand, uh, to uh, teach them a way that is not going to end up uh, being destructive and uh, dismissive of truth, but rather is going to lead them into truth. So uh, really important that we keep that 
uh, focused there. So uh, there's already stuff uh, brewing on the Internet about uh, this particular incident, uh, saying that it was a false flag, that it is designed to turn Muslims and uh, Christians against each other uh, instead of uh, focusing in as uh, one particularly loathsome uh, commentator put it, on our mutual enemy, the Jews. Uh, it's just fascinating to me how spiritually uh, we see a, a real lead-up to the Great Tribulation period, particularly uh, when we see uh, passages like Revelation chapter 12. We are told that uh, the dragon went off to make war against the woman who gave birth to the child who was going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, that is, Satan hates the Jewish people because Jesus has come from the Jewish people. Satan hates the Jewish people because God still has a plan for the Jewish people. And so we really need to be lifting them up in prayer and, uh, you know, again, standing strong with Israel in the midst of this particular uh, conflict. So uh, fascinating stuff for sure uh, going on in this world. Uh, another uh, in interesting uh, incident that took place uh, over the weekend uh, was during the Super Bowl. Uh, during the Super Bowl, there were a number of ads shown uh, by an organization that calls itself uh, He Gets Us. Uh, and what uh, this organization does is that they uh, post uh, television commercials that uh, they would say uh, would enhance uh, the uh, possibility of people discussing Jesus, and uh, that that's uh, what uh, what they're there for. Uh, the uh, the big problem with the He Gets Us uh, organization, and you can check out their material uh, online, uh, is that uh, oftentimes they will talk about Jesus, but it's sort of a Jesus light, if you will. Uh, the uh, the commercial that they uh, issued uh, during the uh, Super Bowl. Uh, was uh, was fascinating uh, because uh, it showed uh, a girl in front of an abortion clinic, uh, a mad uh, crowd looking like uh, Black Lives Matter uh, riot about to happen, a bus with illegal immigrants and a gay man at the end striking a pose, and they also show individuals washing their feet. Uh, the idea behind all of this, uh, these foot washings, including a picture of uh, seemingly a southern uh, gentleman uh, washing the foot of uh, an illegal uh, alien uh, crossing the border and, and so on. Uh, you know, the idea behind all of this uh, was uh, that uh, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed people's feet. And uh, so uh, he gets us. Well, the point uh, behind all of that, obviously, uh, was that Jesus was a man of compassion and so on. And as far as it goes, yeah, he did wash his disciples' feet. And never once ever uttered the words we read in John chapter 8, go and sin no more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said sarcastically. Yeah. But, uh, but the, the big problem that has come out of these ads, and it's kind of created a kind of a, an internet Donnybrook, is that is this really the Jesus of the Bible? And those who would criticize the He Gets Us uh, ads and so on uh, would say that what we see being portrayed here is a critical theory activist Jesus, a false religious ecumenicism promoting Jesus, an earth worship environmentalist Jesus, 
a uh, Jesus that would aff affirm uh, homosexual relations. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's a really important question for us to wrestle with because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we are told uh, in verse 3, but I fear somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Uh, for he who comes to you uh, and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may very well put up with it. So uh, I guess the big question we've got to wrestle through is, is the he gets us thing another Jesus? Is it a, uh, a, a biblical presentation of Jesus or not? And I, I think there's two things that we need to uh, consider to come up with an answer for all of this. First of all, the he gets us website openly says that their view of Jesus is an amalgamation of the views of Jesus for those who believe that he is God, the Son of God, and those who are not Christians. Uh, from their own website, it says, our work uh, represents the input from Christians who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as well as many others who, though not Christians, share a deep admiration for the man that Jesus was, and we are deeply, in, and, and are, we are deeply inspired and curious to explore his story. We look at his biography through a modern lens to find new relevance in often overlooked moments and themes from his ministry. Uh, Which is and, a very eloquent way of saying, throw it out the window and say what we like and don't like. Well, you know, let's not jump to that conclusion too quickly. Maybe uh, later. Uh, you know, and you know, we've got to be careful about being, uh, I mean, some of these things I think lead us to be a bit snarky, but we have to be careful about that. We'll keep balanced views. I'm the snark. Uh, so uh, let's hope you're not the snark. Just... But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it, you know, does, uh, does the uh, He Gets Us ads uh, rise to the level of uh, preaching a, another Jesus that we find there? Well, let's examine the whole thing about Jesus washing people's feet. Uh, the idea is that Jesus did not teach hate. He washed people's feet. Uh, the big question we got to ask is, okay, uh, they've cited this incident from the life of Jesus when he washed his disciples' feet. Um, what was the purpose and the point of Jesus' foot washing in this particular incident? Because they said they wanted to look into it. They wanted to read about his life. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, again, John chapter 13, we're told now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that, he had, that uh, the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? He said, what I do now you do not understand, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? This is where the explanation comes okay, in. Okay, let's, so let's figure out exactly what Jesus was doing here from his own words. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you, for I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, I tell you uh, before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whoever uh, I send receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Uh, Jesus isn't saying I want you to wash one another's feet as a categorical way of saying that you will accept an individual based uh, without any qualms about what's going on in their life morally. That, that doesn't fit this pattern. Why? Because Jesus, not once, but twice, goes out of his way to say, I washed all your feet, but not all of you are right with me. And even if that were what he intended, you don't see that he gets us commercial having the reverse groups presented, washing the other person's feet. This is specifically going one way with an agenda. Yeah. So um, does the he gets us commercial, you know, does, does it have, in a sense, um, for lack of a better term, a, uh, uh, a good set of intentions uh, behind it all? Uh, you know, there's been a number of comments on all of that. Uh, anything I think that brings up the person of Jesus is probably a good thing if it's used properly. Uh, but how could a Christian use these things properly? Well, maybe to say to someone watching all of this, uh, you know, it's interesting. The whole thing about Jesus washing his disciples' feet, it was to demonstrate on the eve of his betrayal and his crucifixion, how much he loved his disciples. Which will be very offensive to Muslims. Yeah. So, you know, when we uh, take an opportunity to use these things as a platform to be able to share, uh, then I think that's great. Could the He Gets Us people do a better job of all of this? Well, I'm not sure that they can, if in fact the Jesus that they're presenting and the message about Jesus they're presenting comes from an amalgamation of people that have a genuine relationship with Jesus and those who admittedly say, well, we think he's an admirable man, but nothing more. If that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when uh, this conversation comes up, there was an interesting article on the PJ Media site about all of this. And the question was asked, do we do people any favors by presenting them an ad Jesus or the real Jesus in Scripture? Um, you know, I don't really think that Jesus needs to be repackaged. I don't think Jesus, in a sense, 
needs ad men to go forward and focus groups to be able to say, how can we make you more palatable to the average person? If we share God's truth with them, if we let Jesus' life itself speak, like we've tried to do in terms of answering the question, what was foot washing all about? It wasn't a gesture of unconditional acceptance. Or because Jesus, worship. Because Jesus did call out Judas, an individual whose feet were washed. In the setting that the act was first demonstrated. Right. With Jesus in mind. Yeah, but it was a picture of the fact that Jesus was there as a servant, and his ultimate act of servanthood would be laying down his life to pay the price for the sins of not just the disciples, but but the world. And the belief then, affirmation that he was God and that he was sent by God. So an affirmation of the Trinity, there goes all cult groups and Islam, and an affirmation of exclusive deity and ode to obedience in light with the Old Testament, there go hedonist groups and pagan groups, and of course an affirmation and celebration of the fact that he was the one who first served us as opposed to the traditional culture that our rights in this world are what matter most. Yeah, All so. goes out the window with the people trying to be appealed to. So when we're talking about these issues, and again, we can be fairly straightforward with them, we can be a little bit more abrasive in order to get people's attention, a la my little subtitle here, spoken entirely out of uh, good humor. But the point being made is just this. When people bring up Jesus, that isn't a victory, because Mormons bring up Jesus. They claim that he is one God among many who through obedience to law became God. We can hear Jehovah's Witnesses bring up Jesus. That's not a victory because they believe he's the Archangel Michael and a created being, less than God. We can hear Muslims bring up Jesus, but that's not a victory. They believe he is merely a prophet who accomplished nothing in his earthly ministry, was ultimately had everything that he established in claiming Islam to the first century Jews, was thrown out the window or corrupted, according to them, not according to the Quran, and of course, that he spends all of his time denying the Trinity and his deity and his death and his resurrection. Not the sort of things that the historical Jesus is going to support. And then, of course, in modern day, we see people co-opting him as a message of peace and tolerance while, and love, while not even allowing the source Jesus was introduced to us through to define those terms. By love, does it mean acceptance? No. Jesus said, the love that I have for you in John chapter 15 is when you lay down your life for the sake of others. Was and these organizations and groups would rather us lay down our lives for the sake of those who would rather take advantage of them. When we see peace, do we mean peace with each other? No, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. I'm come to divide homes over my truth claims. But what instead did he say? Peace with me, peace with God, all of which the groups that were having their feet washed want nothing to do with. And then, of course, intolerance. Does that mean that you affirm and positively accept them? Well, even if we go to the Old or New Testament, according to Amos chapter 5 and verse 15, what does it say? Do good and love good and hate evil. It's the kind of God that we serve. But if, on the other hand, we take a step back and ask, okay, so tolerance, then what does that mean to allow? The virtue that God himself introduced in allowing people to say no to him. But freedom of choice doesn't mean freedom from consequence. It's our job to enforce laws where they are appropriate, submitting to governing authorities, all of Romans 13, but also not going so far in that tolerance is to say, unless we celebrate 
even deviant positions like child marriage in Islamic groups or in pedophilia or in a child molestation and grooming like in the hedonist community or like polygamy and exploitation of children like in cultic Mormon groups. It's not acceptable to the God of Israel and we need to enforce laws that withhold this. Groups that would enforce or uh, try to enter this group illegally. We can go through all of the examples they said of the sort of people we should be washing the feet of Yet it ultimately comes across as Jesus being what? A celebration and affirmation of evil, according to the sources they claim that they want to discover and examine more. Yeah. And that's the point. So yeah. when we're talking about this, make sure that we are calling out nonsense when we see it, just as much as a good thing when we hear it. Well, a couple things then, uh, I think. Uh, can we then take the fact that this has raised an issue and pivot off it back to the actual story of Jesus? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, and that's probably the best response to something like this. Does that mean that we have to tell people that we agree with everything that's being presented there? No. Um, you know, I think we need to exercise spiritual discernment for sure in situations uh, along that line. Especially it, in commercials. But in a sense, anything that raises the issue of the person of Jesus can be a good thing if we are prepared, again, at, like the the number one scripture that we've based this program on, uh, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and reverence, uh, yeah, you know, as the Lord gives us the opportunity to do so. Uh, you know, again, so important that uh, there's nothing wrong with being kind to a non-Christian, going out of your way to be of service to non-Christians, and uh, if they say, wow, you're so different, why are you so different, to point them to Jesus. Nothing whatsoever wrong with that. But to say that uh, Jesus didn't preach hate, he washed feet. Um, well, he did other things too. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure that that was the point of Jesus' foot washing. In fact, we've shown from Scripture that it's not. Um, you know, I think when uh, Christians try to get together with non-Christians and sort of come to a nice sort of middle ground, uh, it's amazing how often biblical truth, either subtly or not so subtly, gets thrown out. So, um, you know, use the uh, controversy to share Jesus, and I think that's probably the best place to leave it. Yep. Just like in Christmas and Easter seasons, are there weird things the world's thrown in? Absolutely. But we want to talk about the thing, or rather the person who's most worthwhile talking about. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, with the uh, two minutes and change that we have left on the broadcast. We want to get to some questions that we didn't get to over the weekend. Uh, Talon wanted to know, did any prophets write books of the Apocrypha? For those who aren't in on the fancy term, Apocrypha is a Greek word that means the concealment. It's categorically describing a collection of books that the authors themselves did not say were divinely inspired. And part of the reason why they weren't divinely inspired is because they weren't written by any prophets. People tested according to the standard of Moses. So in short, yeah. yeah. Uh, next question or anything? Yeah, and, and and again, the the, the time frame wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, the last uh, prophetic book written was the Book of Malachi, roughly around 400 uh, BC. Uh, the books of the Apocrypha were all written in that intertestamental period, and like you often point out, Sean, they were more or less fan fiction. You know, speculations of uh, what uh, some biblical heroes or individuals uh, might have done. 
uh, and their exploits. And, in and in when the you, case of Enoch, yes, and others, it was an attempt at a historical narrative, but with fictional elements thrown in, like the Archangel Raphael and the accounts of um, Tobet and so forth, and there was other... Healing people with fish guts and, and things uh, like that. Being yeah. forgiven of sins by murdering people, but yeah. uh, others like, say, for instance, the Maccabees, an attempt at history, got one or two things wrong here or there that we can verify. Yeah. But ultimately, you want to know about Hanukkah, that's the first or maybe second place you'd want to go. Also, uh, it's a pun, by the way, uh, when we're talking about, the, there's two books of Maccabees in case you didn't get it, um, but the issue as well, when we look at other instances like, for example, the Wisdom of Solomon, Esdras, the um, extra chapters added to Daniel and so forth, uh, blatantly false, but attempted by the authors themselves not to be in addition to an alteration of Scripture, they specified these as separate. That's the point. Yeah, and nowhere did the Jews accept them as Scripture. Um, you know, again, some of them were uh, respected, like the Maccabees. You know, yeah, that gives us some insight into what was going on during that particular time. But never, ever were they placed on a par with the rest of the Bible. Yeah, so, not according yeah. to the standard of Moses. So no, no prophets were involved with the production of uh, the Apocrypha. Yeah, and then uh, Soup Lady wanted to know very briefly what's going on with Alistair Begg, if you weren't there for when we discussed this. Um, just in short, in short, in short, the incident and controversy is involving him in a conversation and talk show much like this, affirming that someone should not only attend but bring a gift to a wedding that involved their son and a, or grandson and a transgender person. Uh, when he was called out on that saying that's kind of compromising and giving a false message, don't you think? The issue is not that he made a mistake or said something weird on air. As you can see, we do it every day. But the point of emphasis was he said, I need no repentance. He did not receive correction. And that's when red flags go up in the yeah. Christian group. Yeah, I, I think that sums it up. So with that said, <laughs> thank you all for listening to us. Uh, we have your questions ready for action tomorrow, and you'll be joining us as I well. Will. Yeah. We'll look forward to engaging with you guys all there and then. But until then, may the word of the Lord be in you. And, and uh, tell a friend about our new time frame, too. Four to five, Arizona time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.